Hello, and welcome to the Laverne Church of Christ podcast, and thank you for joining us. You can find us at 244 Old Nashville Highway, Laverne, Tennessee, 37086. We hope that any time you are in the area, you will stop by and join us for worship. Our Sunday morning worship is at 9 a.m., with Bible classes following. Our Sunday evening worship is at 6 p.m., and we also have a Bible study on Wednesday at 7 p.m. Tonight's scripture reading will come from 1 Corinthians 1.9. 1 Corinthians 1.9, and that will be found on page 1012. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Five, four, three. Invitation song, 543. Raise your hand if that's your favorite hymn. Well, anyway, I just thought somebody might know it off the top of their head. I don't know what it is. But anyway, 543, thank you for sharing that. And uh, it is super good to see all of you here tonight, uh, here in our 6 p.m. service to worship God. Some of you for the first time today, welcome. Some of you for the second time, good for you. Uh, we are continuing our Sunday night series throughout this year and probably in the next year too, where we are studying the, by the book. And our first book or books that we're going through in this series are the letters of Paul, the apostle to the Corinthians, the church at Corinth. And so tonight our passage is a single verse, just one verse. And it is 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 9. Now, I don't intend for it to be a terribly long lesson, but every time I say that, it ends up being longer than I tended to, so that doesn't make any promises. I'm, <laughs> I'm just saying, that's not my intent. But the point of this is not the length of the lesson, but, but the fact that I think there are some rich concepts here in this one verse that are worthy of taking a few minutes to look at tonight before we break into the next section of the letter. And so this is our text for this evening, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, that begins with these words, God is faithful. God is faithful. Aren't you glad God is faithful? Amen. Now, what does faithful mean? Well, it means full of faith. Uh, what does faith mean? Well, I believe that the New Living Translation words this passage in a helpful way. It, it paraphrases it in a sense, uh, gives the, the, the meaning of the words rather than a strict translation of the words themselves. But the New Living Translation says, God will do this for he is faithful to do what he says. Now, remember, this is following on the heels of what we ended with last Sunday night. We talked about the fact that Paul promises that if we will keep faith with Jesus, he will bring us into his heavenly kingdom. We will stand before his throne on judgment day guiltless. Absolutely guiltless. That's the promise with which Paul brings the conclusion of the introduction of this letter to. That great promise that we as Christians on judgment day, of all the people that have ever lived, we will be standing before the judgment seat of Christ and we will not be held guilty of anything at all. There will be no sins written in those books for the Lord to recite and punish us for. But we will be clean and whole and righteous before him because his blood has washed us clean and cleansed us from our sins. 
And so following on the footsteps of that wonderful promise, Paul says that God will do this because he's faithful. What that ultimately means is that you can trust him. Now, there are two passages in the New Testament that you ought to know off the top of your head. Hebrews 6 and verse 18, in, in which the Bible tells us it's impossible for God to lie. It's not possible for God to lie. God doesn't lie. He cannot lie. It is not within his nature to lie. It's not possible for, for God to speak something and it not come true. If God were to say something that seemed to be an impossibility to us, if he decreed it, it would therefore be true. But, but that's not even the point that Paul is bringing about in this passage. The point is that God's moral character is perfect. His moral character is without any flaw. James will tell us in chapter 1 that every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of light with whom there is no variation or shadow due to turning. Or some ver versions say shadow due to change. And I think the meaning of that that James is writing is that God doesn't have a dark side. Not at all. He doesn't cast a shadow, so to speak. There's nothing about God that is in any way morally off. He is morally perfect. He is altogether and wholly good. He is omnibenevolent, which means all benevolent, which means all good. And that means that God will never, ever lie to anyone about anything. Titus 1-2 agrees with this statement in which Paul says, again, God cannot lie. Therefore, all his promises are completely reliable and trustworthy. And of course, that goes for the, the good sense of the promises that we're talking about in this context. But we all ought to be warned. It means it also is true about the promises he's made about, well, about opening up his wrath upon those who don't know him and, and have not obeyed Jesus and followed his teachings on Judgment Day. In our world today, there are a lot of people in Christendom that are saying, well, I, you know, I know that, that, that this, this lifestyle I'm living or this practice that I'm embracing, I know that this goes against what the Bible teaches. I just believe that God is a God of love and forgiveness, and, and he's not going to hold me accountable for that. And on Judgment Day, he's going to look at me, and he's going to see well, that I did more good than evil, and therefore I'm going to get into heaven. Not so. Not so. Later in this epistle, we'll talk about some folks that, that the judgment of Jesus has already been leveled against. And, and, and the, he will tell us in no uncertain terms that th those who do these things, chapter 6 is what I'm referring to, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And let me tell you, if, if God has said that somebody will not inherit his kingdom, they will not inherit his kingdom. And nothing can change that because God does not lie. But the point that Paul is making is about these great promises that he's made to us. Is it worth it sometimes, Christians are drawn to ask? Is it worth it? Is it worth it to fight against sin all of my life? Because those of you that have been Christians for any length of time, you know that it's difficult. Man, there are some things that are easier to resist than others, but all of us have our, our temptations that are prone to be our besetting sins, things that in our physical makeup and our mental makeup we tend to be a little weaker against. And all of us are going to have to fight against sin if we're going to be faithful to Jesus. You have got to prayerfully, leaning on the power of the Holy Spirit, give yourself wholly to, W-H-O-L-L-Y, to, fighting against temptations to sin. And that means that your life is sometimes going to be characterized by hardship that folks out there in the sinful old world that don't care what God thinks don't, have to, don't think they have to worry about. Sometimes Christians will ask, well, is it, is it really worth it? 
Of course it's worth it. Nothing could be more worth the struggle, whatever it requires. What about if you find yourself in a situation that many of our brothers and sisters have over the centuries of the role of the Christian era, where your life is literally on the line, where some enemy of the gospel is saying to you, deny Jesus or I will kill you. And that's happened. It's not a fantasy. And it's still happening today in some places in the Muslim world especially. I get notices from certain organizations informing me about Christians operating in the Middle East that need to be prayed for because they're in prison, subject to possibly the death penalty, in some cases because they're trying to convert Muslims out of that false religion into the truth of the gospel. And sometimes they're executed. Is it worth it? Is it worth laying down your life for the cause of Christ if that's what's required? If it's worth giving your life, then it's worth living your life. And so the Apostle Paul tells us in no uncertain terms that the reason why we are able to be so bold, the reason why we can stand up as followers of Jesus even in the face of death, even in the face of, with the cost of our own life, we can stand up and say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, even if it means you will take my life. I know that Jesus can give it back to me again better than it ever was. I know that's true. And therefore, I have no fear of death whatsoever. And if I have no fear of death, then doesn't it follow that I should not be afraid to live and to live the best life that I can possibly live? You see, the promises of God are the most important realities in your life. Knowing the promises that God has made is the most important thing that you can possibly know. And if you're not an active and prayerful student of the Word of God, you need to correct that, that uh, weakness of your faith and uh, of your, the life that you're living before God. You need to correct it now. You need to correct it completely. You need to become a zealous student of the Word of God. And read it and study it prayerfully and soak in everything you possibly can. Because there is nothing in the world that's better to know than God. God, in his perfect moral trustworthiness, I know whom I have believed, Paul would say in 2 Timothy 4. I know him, and therefore I am persuaded that he is able to guard or to keep what I have entrusted to him against that day. And he wrote that knowing that in just a short period of time he would be headed, be beheaded under the Roman Emperor Nero because he was a Christian. He knew his God. I know his God. And this, his God is faithful. He's our God too. So the word faith comes from the Greek word pistos, which in the noun form means trusty or faithful or worthy of trust or reliable. And Paul's point in this context is that God is 100% trustworthy in every way. And so Paul says, God is faithful by whom you. I just want to remind you again, in this whole context of 1 Corinthians, Paul is using the plural pronoun in the Greek, which we just had the word you in English, which is either, you know, it's either you or plural or you singular. I like being a southerner because... We use the word y'all, which makes it abundantly clear whether we're talking about one person or many. And truth, truth will be told, you can translate this with y'all, and it's perfectly in line with the Greek, all right? So I'm going to read this the way a proper speaker of the King's English will read it, okay? God is faithful by whom y'all were called into the fellowship of the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, all right? 
And so he's talking to all of us as a family, as a collective, as a community of God's people together. We were called, and there's that word called again that we've talked about a little bit already in introducing this epistle. But he says in this context we've been called into fellowship. We talked about before that that means that we have been in some way or another contacted. And I was contacted by God personally from the moment I was born, being surrounded by Christians in a Christian family. And God used those influences of the Christian family in which I was raised. And my family, we, I was born in Nashville. And uh, I guess we went to Lebanon Road Church of Christ before that. Yes, that's where my mom is nodding. Yes, uh, that's where my father was baptized. And, and uh, But when, we were, when I was one year old, we moved here to Laverne Church of Christ. And I grew up here in this congregation in this context. And so many, some of you in this room, some that have already gone on to their reward, have been the means of God contacting me personally in order to call me into the fellowship of his son, Jesus, our Lord. And each one of you has your own version of that story. However it was that God contacted you, he used somebody who was his servant, who, who reached out to you in some way to draw you into a conversation or into a relationship that led you to trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And in so doing, God personally contacted you, and in so doing, he contracted you to serve him as long as you live this life, to be faithful to him as one sharing the gospel of Jesus and striving to excel in the good works that give glory to his name. And this means that we have a reason to live. It means that we have a purpose for life, a purpose for living. It is, it is worth it to get up every day if you were a follower of Jesus and to live your life for him because this means something. We've talked about that term vocation, a calling as a vocation, as a job that you have a special calling to. I heard this years ago, and I've heard it over the years many times, but ability plus opportunity equals responsibility. And I think that's a good way to sum up what it means that we've been called through Jesus into this fellowship of his son. Uh, we have been given an ability. Each one of us have been given abilities by God, and they vary, and they differ between us. Some people are more intellectually, you know, minded. Some people are more practically minded. You know, some people are good at speaking publicly. Somebody don't ever, people don't ever want to speak publicly. Somebody just great. Some people are just great encouragers. Some folks have gifts of leadership. Some folks have a heart to give. You know, there are so many ways that God has empowered each one of us with gifts that we can use in service to him. And I will guarantee you this, and you know it's true. God gives you many opportunities in your life to put your gifts into good service. And if God has given you a gift, and he's called you to use that as part of your vocation of service to him in this life, and he's given you opportunities with which to exercise that gift, to put it into good use so that it will bear some kind of fruit, for God, then you have a responsibility to fulfill up the measured ministry that the Lord has called you to. It means that there is no such thing as a pew warmer who is doing what God would have them to do. You know what I mean by that, right? What I mean by that is that there is no such thing as a Christianity in which your job is done by just coming to church and sitting on a pew for an hour or two a week. Now, there is no such thing as healthy Christianity that does not involve you coming to assemble with the saints and worship regularly at least once on the first day of the week. We all ought to be here every time the doors are open if we possibly could be because where's the disciple of Jesus going to be except where Jesus' people are being disciples together. Amen? Amen? Simple as that. Just as simple as that. But but that is equipping 
not the end of the thing. It's where we're getting our tanks filled, so to speak. It's where we're getting information taught to us. It's where we're, we're coming together to support each other, encourage each other, so that we can get up off the pews and put our, our, our talents to work and service to the king so that we can bear some fruit for him because we love him and he's done so much for us and he's given everything for us so it is not too much for him to ask that we would be active in his fields as a service, right? Praise the Lord. Ability plus opportunity equals responsibility, and that is our vocation. So God is faithful by whom y'all were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, this is the first time in the book of 1 Corinthians that we come across this concept of fellowship. And it is a translation of the Greek word koinonia. Koinonia is the Greek word for fellowship used throughout the New Testament in many, many places. Of course, obviously, it is translated as fellowship, but it could also be translated and is in some contexts as communion or as association or as community or partnership. Strong's exhaustive uh, dictionary or concordance and dictionary of Greek words says that it is literally participation. And in order to make sense of it in its context in the New Testament, many teachers, and that includes me also, will say, I think the best English translation of the Greek word koinonia is the phrase joint participation. Joint participation. Now, we use the word fellowship all the time to talk about fellowship meals. <laughs> Uh, where we're going to get together on a Sunday afternoon and share a meal together. The last Sunday of this month being a fifth Sunday, uh, we're going to have a, the church eat church kind of situation again, which I think we all very much enjoy to do. I at least speak for myself and say I enjoy that very much. And it is fellowship. That is an expression of Christian fellowship. Because all of us in our different households, you know, we come up with um, our favorite dish or with whatever dish we're capable of making, based upon what might happen to be in the refrigerator, how it is that you choose to do that. And each of us participates by contributing something to that great big feast. And so we are jointly participating in providing a meal for each other, and then we sit down in each other's presence and we express this communion that we have, with this, this unity, that, this community that we have in Christ together by sitting down and sharing a meal together. And it's a very beautiful thing. Theologically, a lot of guys would call it table fellowship, which ultimately flows from the table of Christ. We take the Lord's Supper together. That's kind of the, the headwaters of this whole idea of sitting down for a meal together. In fact, when we read Jesus and he talks about the wedding feast on that great day, the promises in the Gospels, Jesus tells us that uh, on when judgment day has settled and been concluded and those who are not faithful to Jesus have been cast into outer darkness and the only ones that are left are those of us who are faithful to God and always have been? He said, many will come from east and west and will recline at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of heaven. Reclining at table is a Jewish idiom uh, for sitting down to a meal together. It's something that's very important to God and always has been. All of the Old Testament sacrificial system involved eating a portion of that sacrifice together. When the worshiper would bring that spotless lamb to offer it in Jerusalem at the temple for his or his family's sins, a, a portion of that would be burned up to God, and that symbolized God sitting down and eating 
that animal with his people that had been made holy because of his altar. And a portion was given to the priests and to the Levites, and they ate a portion of that sacrifice. And a portion would be given to the worshiper who had brought the animal. And he and his family would sit down together and they would eat. And thus they would all share table fellowship because their fellowship was created and sustained by their common access to that same altar. And brothers and sisters, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed except the sacrificial system. Not that sacrifice is gone, but all that sacrifice has been fulfilled in the cross of Christ. And as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are all sharers in and partakers of that altar, the cross, upon which Jesus offered himself. And it is our shared belief in the truth of the matter that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, binds us together as family. And it calls us not merely to sit down and share table fellowship together and share meals together, although that's an expression of our fellowship, but it calls us to joint participate in every aspect of living the Christian life together and fulfilling the Great Commission together. We see the beginning of Christian fellowship, as it were, in the church properly established in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, where we read that the result of the preaching on Pentecost after uh, folks had been baptized into Christ, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching or doctrine in the fellowship in breaking bread and in prayer. And one of the things, ways that we see that fellowship manifesting over the course of the chapters that follow from Acts chapter 2 is a recognition that the work of the gospel is something that we've all got to have our hand in one way or another. There were folks in the ancient world in the first century, we read about in the book of Acts, who were maybe the frontline workers of the kingdom, the apostles and those missionaries and evangelists that went out into the world with them and faced all of the resistance of the pagan world as the devil fought against their work for Jesus. Many of them lost their lives and they faced hardship. And there were folks that weren't called to that particular ministry and they worked hard and they contributed. There were folks that sold land and laid that money at the apostles' feet because they thought, well, I don't know what all I can do to fulfill the Great Commission, but I can sure enough make sure that you guys can do it well provided for. In so doing, they were jointly participating in the work of the kingdom. We think about our mission to carry the gospel to the lost and dying world around us. All of us have a part in that in some way or another. You know, the congregation here, we break down the overarching umbrella of ministry, just ministry in general. We break it down into evangelism, the ministry of evangelism, sharing the gospel message. We break it down into edification, which is the, the part of the ministry where a Christian builds up other Christians in spirit and knowledge and encouragement. We talk about benevolence, where we do good works. We try to feed the hungry and clothe the naked help to ease the, the pain that the poor are experiencing in the world. We do all of this not necessarily because we're concerned so much about the flesh. We do this to bring glory to God and to point people to Jesus, their Savior, to try to get them on that pathway to redemption that is going to lead them to join hands with us in carrying out the mission of the gospel as well. I don't want to add too many words to that. Uh, John, uh, Romans 15, verse 26, the Apostle Paul was writing to the church at Rome and telling them that he was looking forward to coming to them so that they could help him on his way to go preach the gospel in Spain. He was saying he wanted their joint participation. He wanted their help so that that great objective could be accomplished. 
1 Corinthians 10 and verse 16, 1 John 1 and verse 7. Uh, 1 John 1 and verse 7 especially I want to focus on because there John the Apostle tells us that if, it's a conditional thing, if we walk in the light as he, our Lord, is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of our Savior continually cleanses us from all sin. You see, one of the aspects of joint participation of fellowship is that we join hands in that commitment to fight against sin. I asked you, is it worth it? Oh, yes, it's worth it. There is a heaven to gain, and there is a hell to shun. And we need to be doing everything in our power to respond to God in faith and to continue to trust in him and obey him and live lives that please him because there is a lot at stake in this so-called game of life. But I'll tell you what. When I know that I have a whole family of brothers and sisters in Christ that I can share my burdens with, I know that I'm struggling against the weaknesses of my flesh, and I know that you're struggling against the weaknesses of yours. It encourages me to know that we're fighting that fight together. And I'm here for you. I promise you I'm here for you. If I can help you in any way to bear the burden of your walk with Jesus, it's mostly grace and glory and beauty and joy, and it really is. I would say that Christian life, in my experience, the good far outweighs the negatives. The blessings far outweigh even the responsibilities, but the responsibilities are there. And we have periods of time in our lives when our hearts are weak and we're tired, and it can be difficult to keep moving on. But man, when you've got a church full of brothers and sisters who are willing to, to reach out their hand, put an arm around you, help you just take those next few steps along the journey, doesn't it make it a whole lot easier? We feel today, and I know that you feel it to some degree or another, you feel a great sense of growing animosity in the world around us against the truth and against the cause of Christ and against the Bible and against the lifestyle that it teaches us is right. And I, I get surprised, surprised nowadays that things have gone so far from even where they were when I was a child. America is very, very different than it was when I was a child. For those of you that are my age or older, you know good and well that's true. You know it's true. And in saying that, I, I have no means saying America's ever been the promised land. It certainly hasn't always been that for everybody, and I know that's true. It's definitely never been a place free from sin. Nothing's ever been perfect about this nation. <coughs> but you know things have changed. And it's gotten to the point now where I look around our world, and when I see people in the world, I'm talking about folks that are not a part of the church, when I see them say anything that, that is even adjacent to the truth, when I hear them affirming anything that I know is morally right, surprises me. It's pleasantly surprising, believe me, but it's a surprise nevertheless. And so I'll tell you this, brothers and sisters, and I say this from my heart. Being able to come here every Sunday and Wednesday, plus the other occasions that we have an opportunity to get together, and to be able to look across this room and see all of you, and know that all of you are following the same Lord that I'm following. You believe in the same Bible as the Word of God that I believe in you're struggling against the same flesh that I'm struggling against, and we're doing this together, and I see the remnant of God's people, and I see his promises coming true, it emboldens me to stand up for the truth in spite of the fact that it is in battle today. And I will tell you this, I trust in the promises of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I don't know how, how bad things will get in Western civilization before there's a revival or before Christ comes again. I don't know which is going to happen. But I will tell you this, no matter what, I know.
that I am on the winning team. Because Jesus has already defeated Satan. And there is nothing that anyone can do to stop him from coming back and claiming his rights over all creation for eternity. And I'm with him. I trust him. How about you? That's the lesson for tonight. We are together in fellowship as God's people. If you're not a part of this fellowship of God's people, it's very easy to change your status from one that is in the world to one who is in Christ. It simply begins with confessing your faith in Jesus, making a decision to turn from your sins in repentance, obeying the commandments to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. The water's ready. It's warm. You can put on Christ in baptism tonight. This evening, if you are already a baptized believer, but you really need the helping hand of your brothers and sisters in Christ to cheer up your spirit and help you keep moving forward in a positive way, front pews are open. Come, as we stand and sing. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. If you have any questions, please email them to us at office at lavernecoc.org. Once again, we thank you for listening, and we hope you have a blessed day.